It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman. Today, our guest is Jenny Alstrom. She's had her own journey uh, fighting cancer and finds herself now as an advocate, someone who is working to try to help those who have cancer find more information, find more connection. In fact, we'll talk a little bit more about that in general. But Jenny Alstrom, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Rebecca, for having me. First of all, we're inviting you here today because you've started a new nonprofit. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, my cancer journey actually didn't start when I created the nonprofit. It started probably 14 years ago. Um, My husband's brother, my brother-in-law, David, was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, which is called AML. They call it the killer. It's a very aggressive form of cancer. And it was um, pretty much just a horrendous year for the family. It was a very severe experience. And there were eight kids in the family and all took a turn helping through that experience. Acute myeloid myeloid leukemia. Correct. So mm-hmm. this is the type of cancer that attacks the myeloid sheath? Tell me a it's little a, bit about it's it. It's a red blood cell cancer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's in the leukemia family. There are a variety of leukemias, but that's one of them that's the most, one of the most aggressive. And we learned a lot. We learned uh, what not to do, I guess, in taking care of a cancer patient and how proactive we had to be. In that whole experience, um, halfway into it, he was in the ICU and hanging on for dear life to the side of the bed and intubated. And um, the doctor really said, you know, you're being really unkind for keeping him alive. Mm. And we, I would let him go if I were you. And my husband had done some research to find that he had a particular protein on the surface of his leukemia cells. And he said, there's a therapy that's been approved for older patients called Mylotar. Could you give it to him? And the doctor said, well, you'd really have to get approval from the inventor of the drug, whose name was Irv Bernstein. So my husband tracked him down in a restaurant in Seattle, um, pulled him out of dinner and put him on the phone with the head of Huntsman and said, um, will you give this to my brother? And he said, yes, it should be fine. So he gave it to David and within 48 hours, he was out of the ICU. Within 72 hours, he was riding a stationary bike. And so that was one of the things we learned that we should do. We should be highly proactive about our care. Uh, we shouldn't just give up because somebody says we're out of options. Uh, there are a lot of options that you can consider. And you need to do your homework in advance. I know so from my, know I was going to say, I know from our experience with my mother's battle with cancer is... It very shortly, family members who are involved in their care and concern, it's almost as if you get a PhD mm-hmm. in cancer care. You learn about the different ways that cancer grows, depending on the d- type of cancer that is in their body. You learn about radiology and the important tool that is. You, you learn about the importance of intercommunication between the radiologist and the oncologist and yeah. the family practice. And how and, that doesn't happen sometimes. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah. how uh, vulnerable 
someone in their weakened physical state and emotional state mm-hmm. with that diagnosis, how vulnerable they are to possibly being lost and not having it. it. It is very much, at least in our experience, that the family becomes that ombudsman, that advocate or loved one who's taking care of them to try to navigate the ocean. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not fair, but you have to do that if you want really the best outcomes that you can get. So my husband went to David when he with David when he was diagnosed, and the doctor was saying similar things that we heard later when I was diagnosed five years later with multiple myeloma, which is a red blood cancer. And he said, you know, we could try this chemotherapy first and then go to stem cell transplant later. Um, and what do you what do you want to do? And of course, you know, you've you're shocked and your life has turned been turned upside down. So you have no idea what you want to do and you're ready to just take advice and you don't know what the best options are. There's no data that shows you, gosh, if I took this path, I could live this long. Or if I took this path, I could live this long. It's interesting though, Jenny, you just said that very quickly. I'm thinking of your husband who's been caring for his brother and then his wife is diagnosed with multiple myeloma. This was you. Yeah. I mean, this happened five years ago, not only to you, but to your husband as well, who has just suffered that trauma. And And was in the same place, Mm -hmm. hearing the same words. You could do this chemotherapy first. And my doctor, um, I went to a general oncologist, which is very common in myeloma, because even though it's the second most common blood cancer, hardly anyone's heard of multiple myeloma. They've heard of leukemia or lymphoma, but very few people have heard of myeloma. And it's actually set to become probably the most common blood cancer just because patients are living longer and patients are getting diagnosed earlier. And leukemia is the third uh, most common. Which is much more mm -hmm, well-known. Can you help me understand, too, I feel like I've heard that those who have been treated for breast cancer with certain types of medication are more more vulnerable to multiple myeloma. Is that correct? I haven't heard that before. Okay. Uh, But... It's more most common. It's a cancer that typically affects older people. It's more common in the African-American community than it is the Caucasian community and more men than women. So and more obesity versus not. So here I am, you know, a white girl (laughs) in my 40s. And we had six kids and my youngest was two at the time. And getting this cancer diagnosis, I'd never heard of multiple myeloma before. I didn't know what it was. Your symptoms were you're getting more tired. Fatigue. Mm -hmm. I mean, what mom of six is not fatigued? (laughs) So, and anemic. But I thought that was kind of related to my last pregnancy. So, didn't, nothing was on the radar. And I think I had had it for probably three years before I got diagnosed with it. So, just didn't. And I have friends who are actually physicians who miss their own myeloma diagnosis because you'll go to the doctor and you'll say, I have back pain or I'm really tired. And then it affects people who are older. So that's very common, back pain and fatigue. Um, and there's There are not a lot of other obvious symptoms unless you have kidney failure or things like that. that so bring it to your there attention. we are five years ago, a young mother of six. You re- hear those words, multiple myeloma. You're in the doctor's office. They're talking about a couple avenues for you. So my, it was eight years ago Thank you. Uh, when I was diagnosed in 2010. And we went to a general oncologist first, which is very common. And he said, I think you have multiple myeloma. I'm going to start you on this drug on Friday. Don't worry. You won't lose your hair because it wasn't a, quote, chemotherapy. It was a targeted therapy. 
and um, don't worry, you know, you'll, we'll just do a stem cell transplant later. And that's when my husband, the light started, and he said, now don't go up to Huntsman because they'll have you doing tandem transplants. So, of course, by the time we hit the parking lot, my husband is on the phone <laughs> with, with the doctor at Huntsman, and we asked the doctor at the local hospital, we said, how many patients with myeloma do you treat? And he said, I treat five. And we asked the specialist, how many patients with myeloma do you treat? And he said, 500. So clearly, there was some pattern recognition going on, and he had done research in addition to just treating patients. So it became clear that the need for an expert in this disease was absolutely critical. And when we got off the phone, my husband said, you know, that's the difference between a junior high basketball coach and an NBA coach. There's just no comparison because he has is treating so many myeloma patients and had for 20 years. And so many of the physicians at Huntsman Cancer Institute are actively involved in the research side of it as well. Very, yes. very connected mm-hmm. as teams learning what is the what have we learned as the most effective treatment? What have we learned? And, and then em- employing that in their care. Yeah. And when you have a bigger data set because you have more patients, you can see more patterns of treatment and you can see what is optimal. So at the time, I wanted to know, I wanted to say, first, do the right testing on me because the diagnosis is really critical. There are genetic features of the disease in any cancer that you need to be aware of. And most patients don't understand that there are, it's not one kind of disease. They look at cancer as, well, cancer is just cancer. A bunch of cells reproducing <sighs> itself like, right. right. Uh-huh. But in myeloma, there are maybe eight or nine different genetic features that can happen. They can happen in combination. They can change over time as you go through treatment. So you really have to understand, and my doctor put it like this. He said, you know, you're fighting a war, and you need to understand your enemy. So let's do the testing that you need to do at the deepest level, whether it's gene expression profiling or or deeper types of genetic testing. And then we know what we have to work with. Well, it turned out I had a high-risk feature. And so that changed the course of my therapy because he wanted to treat me more aggressively. And I trusted my doctor, but I also wanted to see the data. And sometimes you look at individual clinical trials and you say, well, this combination is better than this combination. Or this drug had a good safety profile. But as a patient, I can't see. Show me all the patients that were treated that look like me and show me how they responded because whoever's living the longest, I want that therapy. It makes sense, right? It's it, so- then you have informed decision-making because <laughs> yes. we have over the last 10 years, healthcare has changed saying we want to have patient-driven treatment. We want you to be a part of the decision-making, but without that information is what I'm hearing from you. You're feeling like you're making big decisions in a vacuum versus yes. having the best data in front of you for the best decision for yourself. Yes. And at the time, even the experts disagreed with what treatment was, quote, the best. And so how do you make a decision? And you've never heard of this cancer before. It turned your world upside down. We were actually living out of the country at the time in Mexico. And so I had a lot, we have a lot of decisions to make. Do we stay? Do we go? Where do I get treated? What's the best treatment? And you're making that, they wanted to start treatment on me immediately because I had so much bone damage. So how do you do that (laughs) in an educated way? As I became, then I started the foundation after I finished treatment. Went through the treatment. I did tandem bone marrow transplants. 
I had maintenance therapy for several years. And when I was feeling better, my husband and I just looked at each other and said, we really have to do something differently. We can't do what we did with David's experience. We did partially well, but not so well. And his outcome wasn't great. He lasted a year. And the emotion behind that, I can't even begin to really describe the level of uh, motivation that it gives you. (laughs) It just has sparked a lot of advocacy. So we started by looking at the landscape to see what were other foundations already doing. We don't want to replicate what the good work that is already being done. And every program that we created after we started the foundation was to fill a gap that I saw as a patient. So patients weren't joining clinical trials, and I created a radio program interviewing myeloma researchers to learn more about the clinical trial. Why would somebody want to join your study? How could they join the study? Right. What travel's involved and who's eligible? And explain this in in language that I understand, in patient-friendly language. Because I can read a science paper, but most people, I had a tough time reading the scientific papers when I was on medication. So it didn't make a lot of sense. And then how do you see which one is more important and just trying to assess the relevance of the treatment options? It was difficult. I got on clinicaltrials.gov and there are over 450 open myeloma studies. So I read about two of them. I didn't know what the drugs were or meant and, and just gave up. But then started the program, the radio program. So I started that program, and then we started other educational programs. We have a scientific advisory board that includes some of the top myeloma experts in the world, from the Mayo Clinic and Dana-Farber, Massachusetts General, MD Anderson, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And these are the best of the best. And we said, what's not being done in myeloma that should be done? And the first year we asked that question, we do this at this dinner every year that we have with them, they said, you should be funding high-risk research because it was almost like there were, the word cure was a no-no when I was diagnosed. If you dared say that myeloma could be cured, you were mocked and made fun of, and that's never going to happen. It's going to become a chronic condition. Patients will just have to be on therapy forever. And as it's fine if you're in your 80s to be on therapy for 10 years but and die of something else. But if you're in your 40s, you know, getting a an average remission length of five years isn't... Doesn't isn't, feel long at all, <laughs> does it? Doesn't no. feel long at all. No, not at all. So that's when we decided uh, we have to do something differently. And the following year when we asked that question, they said, you know, you... Um, so many drugs had been introduced, even the myeloma specialists are going to know, have a difficult time knowing how to apply the drugs and in what order. So one of the doctors said, well, couldn't you create a tool that would help patients really take advantage of all the treatments, kind of like a myeloma expert would be treating them? Because 80% of us are going to, to be a general oncologist. It, yeah, uh-huh. Yes. So that's why we created this software program called HealthTree. And HealthTree is a software tool that myeloma patients can use where they can enter information about themselves, about their disease, their prior therapies. And then on the backside, they can see what are my treatment options that are specific to me? What clinical trials am I eligible to join? I don't have to sift through a list of 400. I get a customized list for me. And then we have a friend that calls it the twin machine. Can we accelerate research and see patterns across patients to do what I wanted when I was diagnosed. 
I want to see all patients with this specific genetic feature that are in this certain age group that have either had stem cell transplant or not. Um, and how do they respond? So now we have, we, so we launched this tool. Healthtree.org. Healthtree.org. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we did a 50-city summer tour. We listened to over 800 patients tell us how they wanted to use the tool make, to make, so we could make improvements, so we could assess, you know, what, what do they need? What do they want out of it? It's completely patient-centric, and I think that's the most rare thing about this tool. Well, and I appreciate, for those who've just joined us, this is Jenny Allstrom. She has been an advocate for cancer patients for, I'll say, a number of years now. And, has, and we're talking about the new software that has been um, released as a tool for patients diagnosed with multiple myeloma called healthtree.org. I wanted to pause for just a minute, Jenny, because remembering and knowing loved ones, when that cancer diagnosis comes and you get the, either the phone call or you meet in person with the doctor, one of the very first things we do is try to assess, what does this mean for me? How long can I live? And where where do I where, where can I get information? And you're going to multiple sources with general information. So for me to hear from you that this is a portal for someone to enter their personal information in and access the most relevant tools and information to them, it's extraordinary. It's just a beautiful thing, Jenny. Yeah, it's something that every patient should have no matter what disease. And I think if we get it right in myeloma, we'll go to other cancers. We'll go to other blood cancers probably first. We'll go to other terminal diseases next, like ALS and other things. And we released this video that's now had over 2.7 million views. People are crazy about the idea in general because they see the potential of diseases where, number one, sometimes it's very hard to get even diagnosed properly. And then knowing what to do with that diagnosis and trying to make these immediate decisions that can be life-saving. Every time you make a decision of your care in myeloma, it affects your future potential treatments It affect, because your first remission is your longest remission. So can you hit it right out of the gate in the correct way so that you can live as long as possible? And even potentially we could see patterns now now we, that we have almost 2,000 patients using the system, which in the myeloma space is remarkable. It might not seem because like that. Because it's a rare broad, cancer mm-hmm, in general, right. correct? Yeah. There are 32,000 new cases a year, and there are about 100,000 living myeloma patients in the United States. And so, you describe the board members of your foundation. Give me the name of your foundation. Please. It's called the Crowd Care Foundation. Thank you. The- and we have a division called the Myeloma Crowd. And you mentioned board members, and you started to list some of the most influential cancer treatment and, and research facilities in the country, MD Anderson, uh, and, you know, HCI, Huntsman Cancer Institute. For those who don't live in the areas where those cancer centers are, it can feel absolutely limiting to say, I know where the best, the mm-hmm. most experienced are. My insurance won't let me get there. And, and there in itself, there's that sense of being disconnected from what is out there. So it, it, it's, it's stunning to me, again, to talk about the power of what that uh, software can do to allow people. It does, doesn't matter whether they'll live rurally or no, in a big city. They'll have it, right. access to information to help guide the treatment where they're at. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'll be able to see how the experts treat. So we interviewed myeloma experts and said, how would you treat patients in certain situations? What about the newly diagnosed patient that's standard risk? 
or the newly diagnosed patients that's higher risk or the older frail patient? How would you treat in those scenarios? And they answered this very extensive survey that will run twice a year because the treatments change. They said, for this type of patient, I would do this. For this type of patient, I would do this. So when you go in and you, you see these expert preferred type options, so you're getting recommendations no matter where you live from uh, some from 25 of the top specialists in the country. So you don't necessarily have to travel. It's still a great idea, and we recommend that you go see a myeloma specialist, even if it's to consult once or twice a year on your care because they are going to know you you know, to a T. And that's part of what you learned from your experience, yes, making sure that you're assertive to get the corner. best specialist. Like, yes, yeah. for sure. And it's the biggest, most, the first thing you can do and the best thing you can do for yourself is to find a specialist for your care. But it helps you advocate. So now as patients, we can aggregate our data. No one's restricting us from aggregating our data to help cure one another. And my experience can instruct someone else who was just diagnosed. And someone else's experience can instruct mine. And we can start to find these twins. Is there a place on healthtreat.org where those who are participating in the portal are also able to communicate with each other like a board where, where they're communicating in real time back and forth? We're adding that function because we've heard that. And we've heard some of the doctors, now that I've shown this to probably 35 myeloma specialists, they love it. They say, I can find information faster in HealthTree about my own patient than I can in my provider portal. And I can see because my low patients might go to Huntsman and they might go somewhere else back home or they might go to a third place and you have labs in three different places. So how does that doctor that's treating you aggregate all the important information about the tests that you've had run or the lab work that you've done? And they want to be able to communicate with the patients too and see their profiles. So we're adding that communication ability for both patients that look like your twin and doctors who want to take a look at your care and can maybe have a conversation about your care in the portal. Uh, we have just three minutes um, and, and it doesn't feel like enough time. <laughs> um, did you get stem cell treatment in addition to? Yes. So I had two transplants back to back, six weeks apart. It was the most aggressive therapy that could have been given at that time. And our strategy was hit it hard, and get me in remission for as long as possible until a potential cure could be found. And I've been in a stringent remission for a very long time. Um, my numbers are starting to go up, but um, it's given me the time to advocate. And I felt well, and I haven't been felt like a patient because I'm not in the facility all the time. And so the strategy worked. And there are so many new therapies. There's a lot of hope in myeloma. And the, the doctors are saying, we believe that a cure is possible now for a fraction of patients, which is remarkable and has never been said before. And and it's no longer a, um, a byword to say cure with multiple myeloma. If I go back in time, when I was in college, the word leukemia, it, it, it came with the, the realization that it would be a terminal uh, diagnosis in many cases. And now... Because of research and advocacy, it's not always so Right, with general leukemia. And in mm-hmm. leukemia, it's been interesting because childhood leukemia really drove a lot of that, those advances. 
And why is that? Because parents are willing to pick up their child and take them to an academic center. There are very few academic centers, and you have over eighty-five percent participation rate in the clinical trials for children with leukemia. But you look at adults, and we kind of think, "Well, it's not convenient. My job's here. My family's here. I'm not going to pick up and move. I'm just going to get treated where I am." And really, it's not an approach that's going to accelerate the advance of a cure. So we need to get together <laughs> as patients and share our experiences. And the power of the myeloma stories is remarkable. When we go to these meetings on these fifty cities, we would have patients say, "Turn to the person next to you and tell them your myeloma story within a minute," and then turn to the person after that minute and share your myeloma story. And they couldn't stop. They wanted to share their story. And we said, "What did you learn from that person in a minute? What if we replicated that a hundred thousand times, and shared that not just for a minute, but for hours? What could we learn as a patient and research community? Because this is a true collaboration between patients and researchers and doctors, and it has to be. We're all stakeholders, and the patients are kind of the most important stakeholder." In that whole experience, I'm so honored to have had a chance to bring you in studio, Jenny Alstrom, and I, Alstrom, and I should say, um, years ago I had a chance to meet your brother, and and uh, we lived in South America at the same time in Bolivia, and when you were first diagnosed with multiple myeloma, he did contact me, and I was aware of some of the local. Events and advocacy that you were starting in the very beginning as that journey, and and you've bubbled up from the grassroots to involving some of the most influential researchers、uh, we have in the world. So,、uh, thank you for your advocacy. The website is healthtree dot org. Healthtree dot org.、Mm -hmm. Okay, look for that. Healthtree dot org. And again, the name of your foundation. Aside from that. We are the Crowd Care Foundation, and we have a division called the Myeloma Crowd. Okay, the Crowd Care Foundation. Look for that as well. Jenny Alstrom, thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me.